0: Thank you all for coming, especially on a Friday. I'm going to introduce Merritt Fox from Columbia Law School very briefly. Um, And I'll just introduce him by talking more about the book and the project. For years, Merritt has led this group uh, composed of regulators, academics from the legal side, academics from the economics and business side, and market participants. And it's been about 10 years now of a formal effort to bring together those people with knowledge of the market and to bring their knowledge together so that something like this, this book, could be written that will hope, hopefully inform regulation uh, in the coming years as we have this new stock market and this new regulatory environment and hopefully lead to improve regulation in the area. But it's a book and a project that is based, as the title suggests, on law, economics, and policy. And it brings all these different groups together um, toward one project and one aim. With that said, let's welcome Mary Fox.
1: Well, thank you. Um, I was told to expect nobody on a Friday afternoon, so nothing, uh, obviously, a free lunch has some kind of effect. Um, Yeah, so I am here to kind of give an introduction to this book, The New Stock Market, which I understand uh, Kevin will be using as a textbook in a in a course he's going to be teaching uh, next uh, next semester. Um, okay, the title is uh, the new stock market, um, and you know why the new stock market? Well, because the world really has changed in a huge way in the last couple of decades in terms of how. Uh, securities, and particularly equities, uh, are traded. So let's go back, let's say, just to the early uh, 1990s. That may seem earlier to you than to me, but still it's not that long ago in the history of of the country or the economy. Um, And at that time, if you were talking about the stock of uh, Intel or IBM or General Motors or whatever, what you'd see would be, All of the trading or almost all of the trading would be concentrated in one trading forum for most of the major corporations either the New York Stock Exchange uh, or uh, NASDAQ so all and uh, 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 all of the trades were um, concentrated in a place where a human hand in some sense determined the prices at which things were uh, bought or sold. Uh, Uh, in um, uh, in NASDAQ uh, dealers, the New York Stock Exchange, uh, a a specialist. Uh, And now let's compare it to today. Today, a company like uh, Intel or IBM or Facebook is traded in probably 60 different (coughs) competing trading venues. And here I, I need to introduce a little bit of vocabulary as to how these venues work. They don't involve human hands touching things or human brains even uh, directly uh, touching uh, things. Uh, Each one is what's called an electronic limit order book. That's a computer and it's got kind of inputs from two sides. Uh, One side uh, is produced is people send in what we would call standing limit orders. Uh, and So that would be an offer saying, I am prepared to uh, uh, sell uh, uh, 500 shares of uh, of Facebook for $206.20. And that's a commitment uh, to do that until that order is, limit order is canceled. And then, in some sense, coming in from the other side, our, and that's called kind of supply liquidity. And then coming in from the other side is uh, our orders where somebody just says, I want to buy Facebook stock. And if, all right, well, if, if that offer of, uh, that I just suggested for uh, Facebook is, is still standing there, uh, and an order for 100 shares of uh, Facebook stock comes in, it's supplied from that order. In in some sense, the offer has been uh, accepted. So the computer is just kind of taking these standing limit orders and then uh, accepting these market or marketable orders to execute um, uh, against them. And where so these standing limit orders form what one is always called, back even when there were human hands involved, or human brains, quotes. Uh, Offers and uh, bids for uh, stock. Where do these offers and bids come from today, these standing uh, limit orders? Well, a large portion of them come from something called algorithmic high frequency traders. Uh, Again, uh, basically, it's all programmed by human hands, but the actual decisions about what orders to put in, when to cancel, what price to uh, use, uh, and so on, is all done by an algorithm, taking account of, of, of information of everything that's going on in the market uh, at, uh, at the moment. And in fact, that's very up-to-date information, because each of these competing venues uh, has a computer located right next to the exchange's so-called matching engine uh, computer, so that it can find out very, very quickly any changes in quotes by other people, new transactions uh, and uh, so on. That's called co-location. And in addition, uh, at least the substantial players who are co-located, since there are many different uh, venues, the co-locating computer, if, if I was a, a, um, uh, uh, a high frequency uh, trader, uh, the co-locating uh, computer would be connected with uh, uh, the co-located computer of the same uh, high frequency trader at each of the other uh, forums. Okay, we'll come back to that, but that's the basic setup. It's very electronic, very fast. Okay, now, not everybody is happy with what's going on these days in the new stock market. Uh, Perhaps the most prominent critic is uh, Michael Lewis, who's authored, and as probably many of you know, uh, uh, a number of, of, of interesting journalistic books about different uh, aspects of society. But his target in the book, Flash Boys, that came out uh, four years ago uh, was in fact uh, the new stock market and many of the practices that are occurring within this framework that I've just uh, uh, described. And at the launch of his book he appeared on uh, CBS 60 Minutes and was quoted as saying The United States stock market, the most iconic market in global capitalism, is rigged. That's pretty strong stuff. Uh, um, You know, a lot of um, politicians have uh, uh, um, indicated concerns about what's going on in the market, uh, SEC investigations, various kinds of hearings. There have been a variety of lawsuits objecting to uh, various uh, practices uh, and so on. So, you know, what's the sort of typical critique of a, any particular practice? Well, I'm going to dive in, in in a couple of minutes into one highly criticized practice, so-called electronic um, front run. but what's the kind of general uh, approach? Well, I think the critics typically take, you know, kind of a single example, a representative transaction of the kind they are uh, objecting to. Um, they show that uh, that transaction works out benefiting one party at the expense of another, um, and that other is usually somebody who somehow seems more worthy. Uh, and then they label the resulting wealth transfer and predatory extractive or may be more modest than just unfair. Um, We suggest in the book a kind of a better starting point. Because what we're really asking is, is this practice as a whole a good thing for society, in which case presumably you want to allow it to happen, or a bad thing for society, in which case if it's feasible you'll try to uh, use the law to prohibit it or deter it. so you kind of start by taking the practice as occurring on a repeated basis, uh, then consider the reaction by uh, the various actors in the market to their knowledge that this practice is going on, and then compare that to a world uh, without that practice in terms of kind of ultimate impacts in terms of you know kind of which world is it that conforms more closely to what we would think of as efficient uh, and uh, fair. And I'm going to kind of run through that kind of story in a few minutes, um, talking about um, uh, electronic uh. Um, You know, our overall take on the criticisms, I think, is, you know, first of all, the new stock market, as I've described, is truly new. And, uh, um, you know, because of that, like anything that's complicated and new, it's not all that well uh, understood. Uh, we am trying to kind of some of that vacuum with the book. Uh, I think many of the criticisms uh, of the new stock market really arise from those uh, misunderstandings, but still there are some other practices uh, that uh, critics condemn whether for the right or wrong reasons that are in fact undesirable and call for action in some cases simply enforcement of uh, existing uh, law in other cases uh, regulatory changes may be needed <laughs> okay so the the book I think kind of you know it's new in in maybe two ways uh, First of all, as I've already suggested, it studies a a market where uh, many of the practices have been uh, transformed uh, by by innovation, but also um, we know a lot more than we used to. We've developed a lot of effective techniques for studying how markets work that weren't around just a few uh, decades ago. So the book uses that kind of new learning from financial economics and microstructure economics, which kind of the study of how markets work and the theory of the firm. Okay, well, the book addresses a whole lot of different areas of application. Since I don't have uh, six or eight hours to talk with you, uh, I won't run through all of them. In fact, I'm just going to talk about um, a particular practice of high frequency uh, traders. But some of the other things we talk about are insider trading and other kinds of trading where people have information other people don't have in the market, Uh, manipulation, short selling, uh, broker-dealer practices, dark pools, Uh, and various fees that trading venues may pay brokers to send them um, uh, uh, orders. Um, And I'd be happy in the Q&A to talk about some of these if you you have questions. Okay, so let me talk about high frequency traders, um, and a particular practice of theirs, uh, electronic front running. If there's interest in time, I could talk also a little bit about what role I have in terms of volatility in the markets. But let's for the moment just stick to uh, electronic um, front um, So, I think the easiest way of defining it is just to give an example and then from there uh, kind of provide a good definition. So, we're going to Sort of set up a set up a, a scenario, a story. So one character here will be smart money. And smart money is an actively uh, uh, managed investment fund uh, that does what is commonly called fundamental research. And, you know, really digging in and trying to, to try to make a better prediction of what the future prospects of a particular company is, and try to discover stocks that are Uh, that that research suggests are either overpriced or um, underpriced. People have heard of the efficient market hypothesis, but these are the people who take advantage of the fact that, you know, if you can create, in some sense, new information, a new understanding, that gets reflected in price. Um, And the second part of our story is, so uh, smart money decides that Amgen is underpriced and decides it wants to buy a substantial block of it with the hope that that prediction is Correct and over time the price will go up and and uh, they will make some money out of their efforts at research so um, They look out there and what they see is the so-called national best offer is $48 Um, and uh, the uh, idea of the national best offer is we have all these different trading venues, at least the ones that, um, uh, in fact, uh, make public quotes, all the exchanges. Uh, and the national best offer is you look around at all the exchanges and say, who is offering hand gem stock for the lowest price? That's the national best offer. Uh, and uh, in, this, uh, uh, in this case, uh, uh, what we see is it's $48 uh, with 10,000 shares available at that price on Bats one th- which is the exchange, and 35,000 shares available at the New York Stock Exchange. OK, our next uh, character in this scenario is uh, Lightning, and that's high frequency trader, one of these algorithmic uh, traders. I'm going to discuss their business model a little bit in in, in a moment. For, for for now, let me just describe uh, what uh, what uh, what they're doing. So, first of all, Lightning is co-located at Bats Y and New York Stock Exchange. So, recall what that means. Bats Y and New York Stock Exchange. Each have a matching <coughs> engine. Uh, and for each of those, Lightning has a computer right next to that matching uh, engine that finds out everything that's going on in terms of changes in quotes and uh, transactions for the BATS Y ma- matching engine at BATS Y, the New York Stock Exchange matching engine at uh, New York Stock Exchange. And then they have a fiber optic cable which connects these two co-located uh, computers uh, running from two places somewhere in um, uh, uh, New Jersey not too far from the Hudson River in Manhattan um, okay and the other fact we need to know about lightning for this story uh, is uh, that um, uh, it is responsible for. Whoops! I do. There I guess that's not. I guess that's not the. Uh, well, I'm
0: not I'm really, I'm just, the laser. I'm real. This is. What's PowerPoint? I don't use PowerPoint. Power. What do I press to redo it? F F nine. Some somebody uh, here. F eleven. No, I don't. <laughs> There you go. So we have an entire room of people who don't use PowerPoint?
1: No, they're just shy. (laughs) They just don't want to embarrass you. I guess I don't have a pointer. This is weird. Um, So, uh, so remember, One of the uh, limit orders for that's at forty-eight dollars is thirty-five thousand shares at the New York Stock Exchange, uh, and that was posted by lightning. Now, Smart Money, remember, wants to buy some Amgem stock. They think forty-eight dollars is is less than this stock is 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 worth. So they see this these shares are available, and they simultaneously, or their broker, simultaneously sends uh, market orders for these amounts to the two stock exchanges. A 10,000 share order to um, that's why, and a 35,000 share order to the New York Stock Exchange. Now, hey, no. Um, (coughs) Here's the point that I want to make. this is the critical point. Suppose that message, the order gets to bat's Y before uh, the order going to the New York Stock Exchange reaches the New York Stock Exchange right um, These messages may travel at something close to the speed of light, but even the speed of light, takes a little while to get somewhere. So, it's conceivable, right, that if that order to BATS Y gets there, that 10,000 order to BATS Y gets there first, that that Lightning's co-located computer at BATS Y can detect that, send a message to Lightning's co-located computer at the New York Stock Exchange. And that New York Stock Exchange co-located computer could, if Lightning wanted to, or if its algorithm said you ought to, could cancel the 35,000 share um, (coughs) limit order that uh, the quote that, that Lightning had posted on the New York Stock Exchange. Before Smart Money's order ever gets to the New York Stock market. You think that's not possible? But well, look at this. Okay. Of course, that's time lapse photography. Um, okay. So, why? Okay. So, they could if. This technology is possible, and I can tell you it is possible due to enormous investments of money on Lightning's uh, part uh, in, in technology uh, and fiber optic cables and computers and algorithmic uh, algorithm designers and so on, uh, but why would they want to? Well here's one possibility. Suppose the next best offer on the New York Stock Exchange was a sell limit order at 4803. Right? So remember the old lightning offer on the New York Stock Exchange was $48. They cancel that. Uh, and then they submit a new limit order for 35,000 shares at 4802. They might do that because they see this order that's arrived, this big order that has arrived at that's Y, and they say, hmm, looks like somebody's trying to sweep up and buy a lot of Amgen shares. Pretty good chance is somebody trying to get some shares on the New York Stock Exchange, too. Um, why should we be suckers and sell it at $48? We could make a little bit more money by selling it at $48, too. We'd still be the best offer on the New York Stock Exchange. So if, if some big buy order comes into the New York Stock Exchange, uh, it will execute against our offer. And now it's for a higher price. So Lightning could be better off, and Smart Money worse off, by $700. Uh, doesn't sound like a whole lot, but you know, if you do this all the time, it can add up. And in fact, uh, you know, a couple of the major uh, HFTs make uh, make uh, profits in the neighborhood of a half a billion, a billion dollars a year, so I mean, it's, it's, it's real money. Uh, okay, so that's a possibility, but let's imagine something a little less favorable, uh, for Lightning. Suppose the next best offer on the New York Stock Exchange wasn't 4803, but 4801. Um, and it was also a sell limit order for 35,000 uh, shares. Uh, in that case, um, Lightning is out of luck trying to kind of jump in and capture uh, the uh, of the uh, potential uh, uh, smart money uh, uh, buy order because they could put in a new quote for forty eight dollars and one cent too but the way the rules at the New York Stock Exchange and most exchanges work is first first in first out. I mean they, you get priority if you are the earlier person at the set for the same same amount. So this wouldn't work. They wouldn't be able to make this extra profit, but what I'm going to suggest is that Lightning still might wish to cancel, even if it can't replace it with a higher priced um, order um, uh, uh, at a more uh, profitable uh, price. And the reason for that is they gain information. I guess I'm going to use this term in two different ways. Um, they gain insight. Try to use a synonym. They gain insight from seeing that order execute on bats, suggesting to them if somebody wants to buy a whole bunch of uh, um, Amgen stock. Those people well may know something that I, the HFT, which doesn't do research in stocks. They they just pay attention to what's going on in the market. uh, uh, That I don't know about. Uh, Maybe it's not such a good idea to be selling at um, uh, $48. So let's dig in a little bit at this idea because now we really have to understand the business model of a high-frequency trader. Uh, And here's kind of the fundamentals Uh, These high-frequency traders are in the business of they're kind of like old-fashioned dealers They're in the business of trying to make a profit by providing liquidity Uh, And that means kind of standing ready to buy and sell shares as marketable orders uh, come in so they would typically have a buy limit order an offer and a sell limit order a bid on each of several exchanges with the bid lower than uh, the offer. The basic idea is, buy low, so buy from people who want to sell at a lower price, sell to people who want to buy at a, a higher price. We stand ready, these people want to sell right now or they want to buy right now. And we'll provide a service to them, but you know, we make money by buying at a little lower price than we uh, sell. Okay, and they will make money if on average, say the shares they sell, sell for more than the shares that they buy in Amgen and any of the other stocks that in essence they're making a market in. All right, good enough. Sounds in some ways like a pretty easy business, right? Alive, uh, but they've got a problem. Orders that come into uh, a stock exchange are anonymous, so they don't know um, who is sending those orders in, and nobody's excluded. Anybody can send an order, at least if you can find a broker uh, to do it uh, um, for you. So any order that comes in could be from what we call an informed trader. And an informed trader is simply somebody who has a a good reason to believe, uh, as smart money does in our example, good reason to believe that a stock is either overpriced, in which case they'd be sending in buy orders, or underpriced, in which case they'd be sending uh, sell orders. So if you think about this, and, and you, the business of an HFT is to on av- make money by on average buying shares for a lower price than you're selling them, anytime you're dealing with an informed trader, you're going to be in the opposite situation. Remember, the informed trader knows something about the future of the company that the HFT and most of the rest of the market doesn't. And when, when if 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 I'm an HFT and I'm buying uh, when an informed trader wants to sell, that's telling us on average um, I'm going to be buying uh, when at a price that is um, uh, too high. Because the informed trader thinks that is a deal worth making, and they can see the future better than I can. Uh, And um, the same problem, if I'm selling to an informed trader, on average I'm selling at a price that is uh, too low. Um, So when I'm dealing with informed traders, in essence, I'm... um, uh, Buying high and selling low, not like, not a way of making money, right? Well, then how do HFTs make money? Well, they make money by trading with uninformed traders uh, as well, and for those people, uh, you know, buying at the offer and selling at the bid is a profitable transaction on average because because uh, the the um, uh, the uh, offers higher than the than, than the <laughs> bid, so this means the HFTs, like any business, are in a bit of a vice. On the one hand, they've got to have high enough bids and low enough offers uh, that um, people will. The, they, their offers and bids are often the best the national best bid or the national best offer. Otherwise, nobody's ever, you know, they're gonna have those those quotes out there, but nobody's ever gonna take advantage of them and they're just gonna have wasted all this money on technology for nothing, no business. (laughs) So they have to have good enough offers and bids in some sense to attract business. But on the other hand, the spread between the two has to be wide enough that the money they lose from uh, trading with informed traders, uh, they can make up trading with uninformed traders, who are simply paying for this liquidity service. Okay, um, so let's then ask ourselves, this counterfactual, that I suggested as the way of approaching things, we're kind of exploring, we've explored the world, Kind of trying to explore a world with or where I, where um, where electronic uh, front running, this kind of cancellation, because you see something happening in another market in in one market and canceling on another market before an order gets there. Um, um, what uh, what would the what would things look like uh, if that wasn't possible? And it certainly would be possible to construct a world in which it wouldn't be uh, possible with regulation. Uh, well, without that ability to cancel, when, uh, when an HFP suspects an informed order is coming in, H, the high-frequency trader is going to post less aggressive orders, right? They're going to be more vulnerable to trades with informed traders because they can't cancel when they see indications that uh, an informed buy or sell order is coming um, uh, in. So, in order to survive, they're going to have to insist on um, wider um, spreads. So, you know, maybe lightning, you know, if it couldn't engage in electronic front running as a general matter, Maybe its offer instead of forty-eight dollars might have been forty-eight oh one, and maybe its bid instead of um, uh, forty-seven dollars and ninety-eight cents might have been forty-seven dollars and ninety-seven cents or something, uh, something like uh, that. So the bid spread would generally be uh, wider, um, and you know that. What what you know who's affected by this? Well, the smart monies of the world are affected by it. They're going to have to pay a wider spread. They don't like that. But actually, they still would, in this at least this first cut analysis, they still would be better off uh, with, this, um, uh, with the situation where electronic front running uh, couldn't uh, occur because... In essence, the the spread is widened just enough to cover the kind of extra profits that informed traders could make because, because HFTs can't protect themselves in the same way they used to. So the spread is widened to cover that possibility, but everybody pays that widened spread both informed traders and uninformed traders. So it's a little bit complicated idea, but but the idea here is they they have to pay more because they're able to they're they're able to live in a world without electronic front running, but they only have to pay part of the extra profits that they make uh, because of that. So they end up um, ahead. Uh, what kind of ordinary retail investors uh, would face bigger spreads, and they never had to worry about disappearing quotes. They're never going to be detected uh, um, through electronic money. So, in essence, in that in that sense, they're um, worse off. So. All right. Well. As I said, this is our first cut analysis. In a moment, I'm going to give you a second cut analysis that's a little bit more nuanced. But let's follow through with this one first and see what the uh, social consequences are. Um, What are the positives of ending um, the practice? Uh, um, Well, uh, with lower trading costs, because ultimately, remember, smart money has to pay a wider spread, but it's also going to be able to to, um, uh, uh, grab those better offers more frequently, and on balance, that's an advantage uh, to them. Uh, They'll, you know, their, in some sense, their real cost of business will go down, uh, and that'll make it more profitable to search out more information, That's going to make market prices more accurate, which adds to the economy's efficiency in a variety of ways. Uh, Also, if we um, eliminated electronic front-running, we'd eliminate a certain amount of what you might regard as social waste, right? All this money the high-frequency traders are spending on fiber optic cables and cables (coughs) and fancy computers and algorithmic engineers and uh, and so on that could be devoted to some other um, uh, socially useful uh, uh, task. So getting rid of an, what you might call the high-frequency trader's arms race. Um, but there's some negative consequences of ending the practice, too, because uh, those wider spreads mean the market is less liquid. And that's, first of all, not so good for uh, retail investors. They, Face higher trading costs. Uh, and that that prevents them from making uh, um, portfolio adjustments that kind of get them the optimal uh, risk return uh, balance for their situation uh, as easily. Uh, it also raises the cost of capital if stocks are less liquid, uh, they're less desirable to hold for the same expected uh, uh, cash flow. Um, uh, Which in essence means less rewards to saving on the one hand uh, and fewer uh, interesting uh, investment projects are are invested in. Um, And uh, um, that, uh, so that in essence gets in the way of some deals that if you had a more liquid market, um, both savers and uh, uh, firms making new investment projects would find uh, worthwhile to go forward with. So those are some negative consequences. All right, one last slide, and that's a more nuanced analysis, and one that might suggest that maintaining, so so far we've seen there'd be some good things and some bad things if we retain uh, electronic front running, right? the market would be more liquid, that's the good thing, but less price accuracy. Now, last slide I'll just suggest a, a little bit more nuanced view. So far I've been acting as though the only kind of informed trader is a fundamental value informed trader, this kind of virtuous informed trader like smart SmartMinder. Um, but actually, you know, there's some villains out there uh, too. Right. first of all insider traders right tra- Insider inside insider trading right we know that's bad well uh, maybe uh, anyway <laughs> well, I'm going to say it's bad and I think uh, on the whole it is bad uh, so you know those are people who just you know, take the information they find out on their job and um, uh, uh, trade on it uh, um, you know, therefore widening spreads, making, making trading more expensive for everybody else, both smart monies and retail uh, investors. Uh, and somebody we call announcement traders. Again, this is sort of a product of the new stock market, particularly. Um, um, so, you know, uh, Facebook makes some announcement about uh, a, a, a new product, that's going to suggest the stock's worth more. Uh, And, um, you know, it's going to take, right, again, not very much time, but a little bit of time for that to be reflected in price. Um, Suppose I was the first person to pick up and act on that information before anybody else did so that uh, um, I could take advantage, you know, I, the, the old quotes are still there, and I can grab those old quotes and, and, and make some money knowing that the announcement is going to uh, uh, increase uh, demand for, uh, for Facebook stock. Well, um, yeah, here's an idea. How about if I set up a feed to my computer that every time Facebook uh, makes an announcement, it starts reading—you know—long before we can blink an eye, uh, reading the announcement, <coughs> counting the number of positive words versus negative words, and when it sounds positive, zap, sending in uh, a buyer. Or negative words, zap, sending in uh, a seller. Well, that's an announcement trader, and they're around, and they spend a lot of money on. To, and they don't really do anything useful because the price was going to adjust very quickly anyway. And yes, accurate prices are, are good for the economy, but it doesn't matter whether they're accurate in a tenth of a second or in 10 minutes, or probably in that matter, 10 days. Uh, okay, so we have these three kinds of traders, and here's kind of the last point fundamental value traders because they kind of discovered something for themselves through hard work, um, typically have a little bit more time to trade on uh, what they have found out, because it might take a while for somebody else to figure out um, uh, the same thing. So they have the time to kind of split up their total purchase sale into many um, uh, small orders, which would be difficult to detect by electronics. Front running, anyway, right? So they look much more like uninformed um, uh, investors, um, whereas the announcement traders, in particular, but also to a significant extent the insider traders, would be trading on the basis of um, short-lived information. And the announcement traders, quite evidently. Right? They're trying to get in there before anybody actually can even read the, uh, uh, the press release. Uh, but even the insider traders, the most profitable insider trading is, right, is trading very short shortly before uh, a corporation makes some kind of announcement. And you know about the announcement. So you have to trade pretty quickly, uh, too. Um, so if that's the case, then the electronic front running right would be effective against. Uh, announcement traders and insider traders, but not against fundamental value traders, Um, well, that might be the best of both worlds. Because allowing electronic front running keeps the market more liquid. Um, That liquidity benefit is good for uh, um, retail investors, ordinary, uninformed investors. But it would turn out to be good for the fundamental value um, traders uh, uh, as well because their cost of trading uh, would be uh, um, lower. So just an argument that retaining electronic front money might actually benefit share price accuracy as well as its liquidity uh, virtues. Okay, I'm going to, uh, uh, I've talked enough, I'm going to end there and just open things up for Q&A. Yes?
0: are one of the reasons why the US has such leverage on a global stage. And because of that, markets are targeted. So what vulnerabilities, technical or otherwise, does high frequency trading have that could create a significant risk to our markets?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question and I'll have to say it's not something that we address uh, in uh, the book. Um, and it. It does suggest there should be some regulatory concerns at least with the um, um, you know construction of uh, uh, the the trading markets um, uh, themselves the it's like a lot of other things. I think it is true we're More vulnerable because it is completely computer based. But in a way, there's no going back. Uh, I'd say for two reasons. If we kept trading venues as, um, at least if we kept trading venues as electronic limit order books, people can't. Nobody could compete at human brain speed with high frequency traders. So, unless you made high frequency trading illegal, and I'm not even sure exactly how you do that, um, that comes along with having electronic limit order books. Now, I guess you could just plain go back and say, we're going to now go back to having the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and, uh, and people who dealers who you know brokers getting in contact with dealers uh, the way they did um, by telephone or or, um, on, on the old nasdaq or or something like that my guess is we wouldn't just like we wouldn't give up the internet uh we wouldn't give up the benefits of of this kind of trading market because the evidence is it is significantly uh lower transaction costs uh, or lower costs of of, of trade. Yes? One of your points that you get to show is
2: manipulation, and I was just wondering if if perhaps
1: Uh, I think in any market, and certainly including this one, yes, in some sense, the heart of manipulation is tricking liquidity suppliers into thinking that there's demand out there, that there is an informed trader when there isn't. So you're, you're spot on. Uh, that um, uh, there is this potential. Now, I think that potential has always existed. It's existed with um, old-fashioned uh, uh, markets uh, and, as well. Is there more potential for making money this way now? I'm am n- not sure because, in a way, also the Clinton suppliers have more ways of figuring out more quickly, maybe something like that is is going on. But that is absolutely what happens. Yes? Uh, this is uh,
3: sort of related to your new stock market presentation. And, uh, first, to kind of two parts. First, do these high-frequency traders deal in uh, ETFs, exchange-traded funds, which are just groups or aggregations of stocks, or just individual stocks? They definitely engage in, 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 in ETFs as well. Okay, well, give, given that, these ETFs are largely uh, index-type funds. They're not really, some of them are, but most of them are not active. Not managed, yes. Traded or managed funds. So given the tremendous increase in market share in the direction of the market, the rate of index funds, and especially index ETFs. What do you see going forward with that? Uh, predictions are difficult, especially about the future, but uh, obviously <laughs> you have some insight into how this stuff works. and First go what's gonna happen with the markets now with everybody, not everybody, but the market, massively move, moving toward index funds, and this
1: high frequency trading, uh, all right, well, I think there may be a couple of parts to the answer to that um, question. Um, you know, one part is these ETFs wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for kind of you know, similar um, technological achievements. I mean, because they have, for them to work, there needs to be a lot of arbitrage going on. And a tremendous amount of calculating going on all the time to to keep the the actual holdings of the ETF uh, uh, comparable to the index that it's supposed to be um, uh, tracking. And it's look, I've discussed in some sense one thing that high-frequency traders do, Um, but. They certainly also engage in um, arbitrage activities around uh, these um, uh, electronic created um, uh, funds. That can be positive. Sometimes it can be negative, um, in the sense that uh, uh, the flash crash that occurred in 2010 uh, um, was related to somebody putting in a very large sell order for an electronic trading fund and one that was a, a market-wide um, uh, index. Then all of the um, high frequency traders seeing this very large sell order, which I think was actually a mistake uh, you know, back to what they call a fat finger mistake. Uh, the, the high frequency traders who were typically making a market in, in these electronic um, traded funds um, uh, ran away from them because they said, This is so big, I can't recalculate. I'm not going from $48 to $4801 because I see this. I can afford just not to be in business for an hour, right, you know, and we'll figure out what's going on. So that meant there was suddenly no liquidity supply for those, and that in turn had a cascade effect because as the prices of those went crazy, then people were trading against them in the underlying uh, stock. So we got um, uh, um, a lot of reverberation. The market went down nine percent in a matter of a few minutes, the total U.S. Uh, uh, trading market, but also recovered within about 25 minutes. So, yeah, I mean it's it's very much it's very much part of the story. But let me say one other thing, and that may be also uh, part of your question, there's I think a lot of people worry about. There being so much movement to index funds, whether it's old-fashioned mutual fund index funds or electronic (coughs) traded index uh, funds, that there's, in essence, there's no money anymore for the smart monies uh, to be busy doing real research and trying to figure out how the world works. And share prices will get um, uh, less. less accurate, uh, less well informed uh, as a result. I'm not very concerned about that. I, it seems to me, you know, as more money moves into uh, index funds with kind of, you know, people like me saying, you know, I don't think I can predict the future. Uh, I just want as much diversification as possible. on uh, But actually, then, if that really means less research is going on. It's going to mean the profits of the people who do run funds like Smart Money are going to go up. And it's then going to attract money uh, back into those funds. Uh, my view is, at least, uh, that you know that there is kind of a, an equilibrating uh, force here. So I'm not too worried about it. And I'm also not about to um, start engaging in, in a lot of uh, investing in a lot of managed funds. Or, Trying to stock it myself. Another man,
2: yeah? Yeah, so I was just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the magnitudes or the cost of the costs and benefits that you're talking about. So, with the information trader, it seems that when we have high frequency trading, the value of their information is getting arbitraged a bit. High frequency trader gets some of that. Um, and so they get a little bit less when there's a high frequency trader. And in exchange, and, and also we have all of these smart mathematicians going into finance and think of all the theorems they could have proved yes. if they had just stayed in math, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> so costs, and maybe go
1: into other. Maybe they could be you know developing a smart grid for our electrical system or something like that. We would recognize it's clearly social reaction. Right, right. So maybe we steer them <laughs> towards better innovation. Well, I have nothing against the math if I <laughs> uh as as the daughter of a mathematician.
2: Me neither. But uh but I'm not sure i want a theoretical mathematician designing smart cars. But uh, but anyways, uh, so
1: that's off track. So and we get have this thanks.
2: Um so so we have these costs um, from having high frequency trading. But, but then it seems like liquidity is the thing on the other side. So what's the value of liquidity? I mean, why is, is it so much that it almost doesn't matter what these other costs are? If we, if, if we continue to accrue more and more costs and they're, they're borne by these information traders, they're borne by by other things, what, is, it, is liquidity just so fundamental to the stock market that you can put anything kind of piled up on that other side? Or what is the magnitude and how do you- Yeah, I mean, the
1: magnitude is, Substantial, but I think we're talking billions or maybe tens of billions, not hundreds of billions or trillions. Uh, um, how important is liquidity? I think <coughs> liquidity is pretty important. Um, I you know, if you think there are benefits, and there I do, and there's some reason to believe. From having kind of a more market-centered economy as opposed to a more financial institution bank-centered uh, economy, Um well the evidence seems to be, uh, you know, it's the countries that have the most liquid markets that are able to do that. And and as as if you look around the world, um, you know, as as bid asks in in places where bid ask spreads are wider. Markets play a much smaller role. Now well, there may be some questions about direct of, direction of causation, but that's certainly an observation. And, and so it seems as though, from that point of view, liquidity is is, is pretty valuable. And it and, and you know these things feed on each other because you know one reason our market-centered economy seems to work withstanding all the complaints, pretty well relative to a lot of other economies in the world, is because the, the smart monies in the world are doing their work, and if markets were less liquid, um, they wouldn't be able to, to do that. Yeah?
4: Yeah, I'm curious if um, you'd consider sort of a world where, you know, money continues
0: to flow into this sector and expands, but sort of the strategies the algorithms, kind of the Playbooks they're using sort of homogenize as you know they start to share talents and um, you know the industry grows and strategies become sort of more um, defaults. Could that leave us sort of more vulnerable to things like flash crashes or cyber attacks or national security? Basically, if we're all operating off the same cell or buy orders.
1: Yeah. Wow. Uh, um. You know, I don't know that I can say anything more than, you know, one always has to worry about complicated systems, right? Uh, um, but that's true, you know, the CDO market wasn't based on high technology. Uh, I guess it was based on computational technology in the sense of, you know, how you put these packages and mortgages together or whatever. But, um, you know, still it was a system that was very complicated and a lot of people were doing the same thing, and it collapsed. I mean, as a general matter, I guess my prejudice is to be sure you have a system in which contrarians uh, can make money if they have a reasonable basis for being contrary. And I think this is a pretty open system from that point.
4: Yeah, that's I'm wondering how to evaluate the argument uh, against certain kinds of uh, trading structures, and, that, uh, and you see this sort of pops up the very The argument is, yes, this increases efficiency in terms of capital, it increases price efficiency, right? But does it creates such modest increases we don't care about it, right? So the announcement, the electronic kind of announcement trader, right? So um, conceptually, it seems to me, is that guy's kind of doing the Lord's work that information out there and internalizing it into the price and it's creating it's creating more efficient capital allocation. And the argument on the other creating more efficient capital allocation for 15 seconds. Which is which is, so, is absolutely so, irrelevant. So how do I figure out what is absolutely irrelevant? It's not clear to me that it's absolutely irrelevant. So one effect, for example, uh, it seems to be the electronic announcement trader, is that there's a lot of people who are non-electronic announcement traders who now decide this is a fool's errand, right? I don't wanna get into the announcement trading business because there's no money to be made there because I can't compete against the computer. So I'm gonna go become a fundamental values trader, right? I'm gonna go start doing research about firms that a of um, al- uh, um, algorithm can't do, right? And so that, to me, strikes me as socially beneficial. So I don't understand how to um, uh, 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 understand the argument Right. At, at what point does the efficiency gain become something that like we're going to celebrate or is going to be desirable? Like at what point do we say, yes, it's an efficiency gain but it's so small we, we want to destroy it? I don't understand why we want to destroy any efficiency gains, even if it's only for seven seconds. And seven seconds in a large in a large market is money. Um
1: yeah, it's money, but it may just be a transfer.
4: Uh, but I
1: mean I think you make some interesting points, but maybe let's work backward a little bit. I think we're starting with an assumption, which uh, we can't prove, uh, uh, that, you know, as a general matter, information markets are imperfect, and therefore, uh, probably, information being generated that then gets translated into share prices is underproduced, which makes gives us a, a prejudice in favor of um, um, market structures that um, are um, favorable to fundamental value traders, even though fundamental value traders use, uh, uh, use uh, resources. So that's certainly right there an assumption we're making that 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 could be that could be wrong. Uh, um, it has it's more it's more theory based than it is uh, um, uh, than empirically based, and one could could come up with counter theories. Uh, um, you know, in terms of you know transfer of resources or whatever, you yeah, know. I guess what you're saying is, uh, and I don't know. This is an empirical question. Whether more resources used to go into announcement <coughs> training than do now, and this is kind of simply a labor-saving device. Well, that's fine. Um, but uh, you know, if let's say allowing electronic uh, front running makes it less profitable to be in announcement trading. I don't think that, you know, so it's a labor-saving device, but now it's less profitable. I don't think that suddenly uh, reverses that trend of having people who used to be announcement traders now fundamental value traders. So I'm not sure that, that that, I think that's an interesting point, and I never thought about it before, but I don't know that it undermines this particular piece.
0: We are out of time, but we can talk after for those who want to stick around, but thank you very much.